The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the staff postgraduate seminar series. My name is Janice and I'm a second year PhD student at Trinity College Dublin and along with Maggie and Orla, one of the conveners of the series. The series is a supportive space for postgraduate students, faculty and guests to present and discuss their current research and work in progress. We would like to welcome you all to this evening's talk, the second in the series this term. Uh, today we are delighted to have a presentation by Dr. Claire Clark entitled A Shrine of Pilgrimage, Dark Tourism in Late Victorian Crime Writing, Newspapers and Ripper Reportage. Uh, but before we begin, a bit of housekeeping. Um, the series is being hosted by Trinity Longroom Hub. Um, this session will be recorded and if you keep an eye on our blog, we'll let you know where the recordings are. If you're on Twitter, you can find the hub at TLR Hub. You can find us at Seminars TCD 2020. Dr. Clark's Twitter is at Victorian Claire, and she has some really cute cats, <laughs> so you should follow her. Um, if you tweet, please tag those accounts and use the hashtag TCD uh, English uh, SPGS, I believe. Um, yes, all of that information will be available in the chat box for you. You can find the rest of the schedule for the series on Twitter, on our blog, or on the School of English webpage, links of which will also be in the chat. Claire will speak for around 40 minutes and there will be time for questions after. If you have a question, please type it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I will relay as many questions as possible in the time allotted. If there are any technical issues during the seminar, we will attempt to remedy them as quickly as possible and ask for your patience and understanding. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Claire Clark. Claire is an assistant professor of English at Trinity College Dublin, specializing in Victorian popular literature. Her most recent book, British Detective Fiction, 1891 to 1901, The Successors to Sherlock Holmes, was published by Palgrave Macmillan just this past July. We will include a link to that in the chat as well. Um, I was lucky enough to be in Claire's module 19th century detective fiction as an undergraduate at Trinity. And that's when I first learned about the intersection of literature and poverty tourism in 19th century England. So I'm looking forward to the talk and uh, without further ado, ado uh, without further ado, Dr. Claire Clark. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for that, Janice. Um, okay, let me just fiddle with my screen slightly. Can everybody see my screen okay then? Can you see my PowerPoint slide? Or do I need to redo that? Uh, there can't we go. see it yet. Yes. Is that so, that's us now? I can see it now. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So, um, well, we'll dive right in then. Um, let me see. So, uh, you might have seen this news story a few weeks ago, which is about a mural by a female street artist called Zabu. Um, that popped up on the side of the Duke of Wellington pub in London's East End this year. So this is an enormous, scary, trompe-loy image of a blood-stained, bowler-hatted man who's leering out over the street from the side of the pub. And it appears 
just um, before lockdown and about old locals who weren't quite sure what was going on. Now, this is an area, obviously, the um, east end of London that has a strong tie to the story of Jack the Ripper and his murders. Um, for instance, just not that far away from here, you have um, a barber called Jack the Clipper and a chip shop called Jack the Chipper. Um, and pre-COVID, there were tons of Jack the Ripper tours here um, with large groups, you know, traveling around the pavements of East London, often led by theatrical guides who were acting out the details of the, the murders, um, stopping at the sites where the mutilated bodies of the women were found, at the pubs where they drank, uh, and so on. And there's actually a Jack the Ripper Museum in the East End of London as well, which opened in 2015 despite uh, quite a lot of local protest. So when the Ripper Museum opened in 2015, it was initially touted as a museum that was going to be about the social history of women in the East End. But actually what they opened was basically a, a, a Ripper Museum. You can see it in the sign, it's called Jack the Ripper Museum and it's about Jack the Ripper and his victims. And on entering the museum, patrons were greeted by a soundtrack of screaming women. Um, ghoulish waxworks, like the one depicted here on the right of the screen, um, showing women, uh, you know, as they were found dead, were put alongside maybe a few sheets of A4 paper that would give you a few more details about their lives. And then the mortuary section of the museum um, includes photographs of the disemboweled woman, uh, something that you can find on the internet, but which I am not going to be showing today. Um, so if you exit through the gift shop of the museum, then you can find amongst other exciting things to purchase. Uh, Jack the Ripper shot glasses, um, complete with blood spatters. Uh, they're Jack the Ripper top hats and two varieties of Keep Calm Ripper t-shirts. Now, local residents, along with campaign groups, academics and feminists, joined forces basically as soon as this place opened um, to claim that it was glamorizing sexual violence against women. And that basically, um, the, the museum was touted as a feminist space, but was actually deeply misogynistic and voyeuristic. But it's still open to this day. I think it's gone through a couple of changes, but it's essentially the same. So when the, the East End residents realized that the Zabu mural on the side of the pub was a representation of a Jack the Ripper, they went from sort of unsettled by it to outright kind of outraged by it. Um, as one resident put it, the artist, it seemed to me, had danced on the graves of Eddowes, Nichols, Chapman, Stride and Kelly. Hallie Rubenhold, who is the author of a fantastic book called The Five, uh, an award-winning account of the lives of women who died at the hands of the Ripper, 
um, has spoken out about this mural itself. And she says, basically, it's time for people to stop cashing in on the Ripper. The mural, she says, is a celebration of a killer. Um, not something we would do if it was a more recent killer. Um, a man who murdered women, a man who literally ripped women apart. So in early September of this year, then a local writer who lived, I think just next door to the pub, climbed up and whitewashed over the mural. And on top of it, he wrote the name of one of the victims. He said to the Guardian that um, the mural seemed to be playing the victims and the Ripper for laughs, which was just tonally wrong. And he contacted the artist actually and said to her, are you aware of the general feeling about Jack the Ripper and how the industry around him is viewed as kind of misogynistic and exploitative, but she wasn't. And he says like, it seems surprising, especially that a female artist would not think twice about seeming to exalt a murderer of women. Um, Elliot added to that, it seems strange to wash your hands and not have any opinion on a piece of art and its context. So one Sunday afternoon, we painted over it. While we were up there, we thought of putting up the name as a way to help redress the balance. Some museums and so on are examples of what has been described as dark tourism. Dark tourism was first described as the presentation and consumption by visitors of real and commodified death and disaster sites. And then this, this definition was expanded in 2013 um, to say dark tourism is concerned with tourist encounters with spaces of death or calamity that have perturbed the public consciousness, whereby actual and recreated places of the deceased horror, atrocity, or depravity are consumed through visitor experiences. So examples of this type of site would be places where mass murders have occurred. Uh, the Twin Towers, for example, the site of that, um, where terrorist atrocities have been perpetrated, uh, prisons where executions have taken place, even wax museums and other museums of crime. Um, growing up in Belfast, which has an entire tourist industry built around so-called troubles tours, which take you on tours of political murals and places where people were killed, um, I'm very well acquainted with this phenomenon. Um, more recently than that, the, after the release of the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, there was a resurgence in Chernobyl dark tourism conducted by Instagram influencers who were often, as you can see by these specimens here, pictured half naked in sites that still contained dangerous levels of radiation. 
And more recently, um, the Holocaust Museum has been keen to remind visitors about inappropriate behaviour at uh, sites associated with the Holocaust. So they tweeted this in March 2019, basically, that the train tracks which lead to Auschwitz should not be viewed as a place to have a photo opportunity or to play uh, balance beam games. So recently I've begun to be interested in when dark tourism began. And this paper is really a meta story of um, something that grew out of my study of a late Victorian crime novel, which shows the public engaging in dark tourism as early as 1891. So this is the novel here and the author, this is Israel Zangwill with excellent hair and excellent glasses and his novel, The Big Bow Mystery. So Zangwill himself was a Whitechapel resident. He's the eldest son of five children and his father was a Russian refugee from the 1840s who made a very precarious living uh, as a trader in second-hand clothes. Um, Israel Zangwill was an exceptional scholar. He graduated with triple honours from London University before starting work uh, uh, as a schoolmaster. However, he moved on from that soon, um, moving from teaching into journalism and specialising as a satirist and a humorist, and then making a very solid reputation as a novelist, um, especially with his best-selling novel, uh, which is a fictional portrait of London's East End called Children of the Ghetto. And this novel has earned him the title of the Jewish Dickens or the, uh, the Dickens of the Ghetto is another term I've heard used as well. So the Big Bow Mystery was first published in serial form in London's only political radical daily newspaper at the time, The Star, um, in the summer of 1891, over a two-week period from August to September. Zangwill was the star's literary columnist and he soon developed a reputation for his very witty, politically charged reviewing style. So in the summer of 1891, the editor of the Star at the time, Ernest Park, contacted Zangwill and he requested something for the silly season, which is August, the time when people don't know necessarily buy too many newspapers for readers' interest in crime and politics. So with murder in my soul, as Zhang will later put it, the Big Bow mystery was, was hastily written in a fortnight, day by day, and it reached upwards of 250,000 readers during its serialization in the star. Now its construction is fairly formulaic. It's essentially a variation on the classic locked room mystery of the type which was pioneered by Edgar Allan Poe 50 years earlier. But if that construction is formulaic, its setting and its characters certainly are not. 
as the title implies, the Big Bow Mystery actually takes place in London's area of Bow, which is cheek by jowl with Whitechapel, the site of the yet unsolved Ripper murders. Zangwill chose Bow pointedly. So I want just to give you a very short. Uh... Not quite sure what happened there. Um, Zangwill chose Bow pointedly, not only because of the Ripper murders, but also he was setting his novel in a neighbourhood which was rife with contemporary political and social meanings. So as I said, Bow is almost adjacent to Whitechapel, which is the site of the Ripper murders. And on Charles Booth's poverty map, which is pictured here, Bow was identified, um, it's kind of towards the right hand of your screen here, as um, mostly colored in in blues and blacks, which depict poor and very poor classes. And then along the kind of main thoroughfares, you'll see uh, they're colored in red, which indicates kind of more uh, middle class and affluent areas. For sure, but it's it's um, a million miles away figuratively from the hotels and the mansions and the banks that form the geographical epicenter of the Sherlock Holmes stories. This area, Bow, actually housed a large number of factories, including the Bryant and May matchworks. There were a number of flour mills, there were breweries and gasworks. There was the great, the great Eastern Railway and the People's Palace, which is a philanthropically funded centre of culture for the lower classes. In neighbouring Bethnal Green and Mile End stood the philanthropic settlements Oxford House and Toynbee Hall, from which idealistic male university graduates sought to bring friendship and enlightenment to the local poor. Now, given the district's poverty and its large immigrant population, it's not surprising that during the 1880s and 90s, East London also became known as an area of growing um, class agitation and socialist activity. Bow in particular was famously the site of the Match Girls strike of July 1888. The Match Girls are pictured here, um, which was organized by the prominent social reformer, Annie Besant, um, and one of the star writers, George Bernard Shaw, amongst others. And this successful strike then encouraged the growth of new unionism, famous talk strikes of 1889, and the first attempt to organize unskilled women workers into a trade union. Bow would also later become the location for the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, which was formed in 1913 by Sylvia Pankhurst after she broke from the Women's Social and Political Union. So an atmosphere of socialism and radicalism in local politics 
is very much a part of this area. And it's as much a part of Zangwill's novel's atmosphere as the, the mist and the fog that shrouds the main streets of Bow themselves. So this is T.P. O'Connor, or Tepe, as he was often known, Irish journalist, editor, MP, representative of the Home Rule League, and founder of the Star newspaper in January 1888. He founded the paper specifically for the poor and working class East End residents. And it was to be what he called a radical evening organ for the metropolis. In his editorial column for the first edition, O'Connor promised that the paper was for, quote, the charwoman who lives in St Giles, the seamstress who is sweated in Whitechapel, the labourer who stands begging for work outside the dockyard gates in St George's in the East. So it was a paper for the East End working class poor essentially and as a result of that it covered topics that were of interest to that type of reader. So there were editorials in support of home rule, there was a lot of stuff about labour laws and there was also um, material on police brutality and inefficiency. <coughs> Now, the Whitechapel murders were predictably an early example of the star's more sensational coverage. And stories about that continued well into the 1890s. But it became particularly notorious for its lurid coverage of the Ripper murders during the summer of 1888 where it indicted the police for failing to catch the Ripper and basically read this as a failing of the police to look after the interests of the East End poor. So it was saying, you know, that if this had happened in the west of the city, things would be entirely different. So on the 1st of October, for example, with the culprit still at large, obviously, the paper's front page leader was, the police, of course, are helpless. We expect nothing of them. The metropolitan force is rotten to the core. Um, and with this type of material, and it all reached a very healthy circulation of around about 50,000 readers. Um, it also was running to five editions daily, and um, it declared itself a phenomenal success. Along with this brutal political critique, the star also combined, as I said, very lurid and sensational coverage of the Ripper's crime. So, for instance, after the body of the second Ripper body was found, the Times headline, the Times, sorry, I didn't really emphasize that enough, reported quite mildly uh, on, quote, another murder in Whitechapel. So it's very unrestrained. The Star, by contrast, had this headline, a multiple headline, a revolting murder, another woman found horribly mutilated in Whitechapel, ghastly crimes by a maniac. And then it has this very visceral subheading, a policeman discovers a woman lying in a gutter with her throat cut, 
after she has been removed to the hospital, she is found to be disemboweled. This type of lurid headline, though, did nothing to deter readers, and quite the opposite, in fact. And during this summer, with the Ripper coverage, the paper's circulation is reported to have soared to over 300,000 copies daily. And the Big Bow Mystery is positioned ideologically in the teeth of this winning formula of sensational Ripper coverage. So as I said, the Big Bow mystery is in lots of ways quite a lightweight post-Sherlock Holmes locked room mystery, but it's also a very pointed satirical examination of the intersection between London's public, its press, and its print culture, particularly in relationship to consumption of narratives of crime. In the story, Zangwill critiques the role of the press in inciting hysteria over the crime and its part in inciting and encouraging the practice that we would now call dark tourism. What's interesting and a little surprising about this to me is that it seems like a pretty daring thing to publish in the star itself a paper which had really ruthlessly exploited the Whitechapel murders as an editorial topic and as a driver for sales. So I just want to give you a very brief plot synopsis, just having a quick drink of water. So the plot synopsis. Um, the novel tells the story of the murder of a middle-class philanthropist. He has the fantastic name Arthur Constant. So you can see why um, Zangwill was considered kind of like Dickens. <laughs> um, Arthur Constant is an Oxford graduate who is discovered dead in his bed at a bow boarding house. And he had been um, staying in Bow while he was working at the People's Palace in Mile End Road. So just to show you the People's Palace here, this is it opening its doors in 1887 uh, with Queen Victoria in attendance. And the Queen traveling to the People's Palace through Whitechapel there in the image on the right. In the neighbouring areas of Bethnal Green and Mile End, there were the philanthropic settlements of Oxford House and Toynbee Hall, from which male university graduates like Arthur Constant would bring friendship and education to the local poor. Um, and Constant is working at the People's Palace, which is actually in Bow. So Constance Landlady, who also has an, a rather excellent name, uh, Mrs. Drabdump, discovers his body um, while in the company of her neighbour, who's a retired police detective. Um, she had asked him to break into the tenant's room when he didn't answer his morning wake-up call. And together they discover the body of Arthur Constant with his throat cut and his bedroom door is locked from the inside. 
And the subsequent list of suspects for the murder is kind of a coterie of Ista and working class residents, so including uh, a leading trade unionist, the landlady and a hack journalist. And in a pleasingly kind of mocking touch, Zangwill also has the Star newspaper reporting on the death. Um, but the star jumps to the erroneous conclusion that this is a case of suicide rather than murder. Now, the rather surprising denouement, spoiler alert, reveals that it's a retired police officer, the one, in fact, who broke down the door, who was actually the murderer. Uh, when he went in, he found that Constant was just sleeping deeply and he decided to murder him. Um, now, this seems like a kind of playful flourish in a way, but as the mystery unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that the press is not so much an ingredient in this story, but in fact supplies the medium with which the entire story is plotted. Because it turns out that the motivation behind the police detective committing this crime is intricately bound up with print culture. Basically, the killer was motivated by a desire for notoriety in print. He wanted to commit the perfect crime. And he hoped that by doing so, he would garner a lot of press attention and then he would get a contract for his police memoirs, which he has entitled Criminals I Have Caught. So throughout the novel, Zangwill is constantly foregrounding this relationship between crime and the press. He embeds newspaper reports and letters to the press in the text. Um, he reports that, quote, Within a few hours, the jubilant newsboys were shrieking about the murder and the later writers reveled in recapitulating the uh, circumstances of the Big Bow mystery. The star itself is identified as the first paper to break the details of the crime. So Zangwill's Big Bow murder then isn't simply a crime, but it's rather what Judith Wolkowitz referring to the Ripper murders has called a full, uh, sorry, a full-scale media spectacle. So bolstering this idea of the murder as a full-scale kind of media event, Zangwill also describes how um, the site of Constance murder, number 11 Gower Street in Bow, becomes what he calls a shrine of pilgrimage for the newspaper reading public. Consumers of the stories about the murder come to observe the murder site. And from all parts of town, people came to stare up at the bedroom window and wonder with a foolish face of horror. And it was this scene in particular in Zangwill's novel that got me thinking about the concept of dark tourism as a late Victorian spectacle of crime. So I knew that there were lots of modern tours to see the Ripper's crime sites, but I was surprised to find a novel from 1891 
seemingly referring to the practice of going to to look at or to tour, I had thought that it would be something that had started much more recently. So I started to look in Victorian newspapers to see if I could trace the history of this practice in relationship to the Ripper. And I also obviously looked at scholarship on dark tourism, where Victorian Ripper tours are mentioned very fleetingly, but there's really not much detail or much sense of when they began. But after looking in newspapers um, for quite a while and beginning to kind of sketch out this practice, it seems to me that the Ripper tours are a form of urban spectacle that emerged out of a particular appetite for gory details of crime, which had been engendered in a populace who very voraciously consumed tabloid crime journalism in newspapers throughout the century. So if we go back a little bit in time, um, just to, to talk to you about kind of finding out about early examples of dark tourism, we can go back to the 1828 Red Barn murders, which are a good example of the imbrication of crime in the press and the ways that 19th century crime was consumed leading to the creation of a kind of multimedia and cross-class dark tourism spectacle. So in April 1828, the body of Mariah Martin was discovered buried under the floor of the so-called Red Barn, which is that was a landmark in Surrey. She had been killed and buried under the floor by William Corder, who was her erstwhile lover. In July that year, only a few months after the discovery of her body, a full-scale dark tourism industry was already in operation, which was centering on the Red Barn, the location of her murder. So as the editor of the Examiner wrote, the landlord upon whose premises a murder has been committed is nowadays a made man. The place becomes a show, the neighbourhood the scene of a fair. The barn in which Mariah Martin was murdered by Corder was sold in toothpicks. Really, if people indulge in this vile and horrid taste, they will tempt landlords to get murders committed in their houses from the great profit accruing from morbid curiosity. Now, Amazing as it may seem, the boards of the Red Barn were indeed stripped and sold as toothpicks to dark tourists. But if you were to cure a piece of the barn as a, a little souvenir, the murder narrative could be consumed in other ways. So, for instance, one way you could consume it is via the Newgate calendar. The, the famous um, publication about true crime. Um, you would get in that then detailed illustrations of the murder happening and so on. And then on your left here, um, for the more affluent murderabilia aficionado, you have Staffordshire pottery 
all over the red barn and there's a little series of these um, which could be bought. So that's just one example from kind of early in the century. I could go through loads more if I had unlimited time, but I want to skip forward now to the late 1880s and to the Ripper murders. So we'll start with, oh, sorry, I'm on the, I'm on the wrong slide, but I've just been a bit premature. Um, on the 7th of August, 1888, Martha Tabram was found murdered just off Whitechapel High Street. But it was when Polly Nichols was found dead on the 31st of August that the possibility that this was a serial murderer of some kind, although they wouldn't have had that terminology, began to take hold and the press started to feel that this was an interesting story. So the Times, the paper of record, reported on these murders in a fairly sober manner. But the murders were a godsend to papers like the Star. So now we get to see the Illustrated Police News and some um, headlines from that. This is a one penny weekly newspaper which specialised in very graphic illustrated stories about courtroom dramas and lurid true crimes. So you have here for instance, the very common crime of a duel between nuns, uh, a man being eaten by cats, a mad mother throwing her baby out the window, and a set of fair bathers who are attacked by an octopus who looks rather like E.T. But one of the things that undoubtedly attracted readers were the detailed and very graphic illustrations of crimes that you find um, in the Illustrated Police News. And if you go down the rabbit hole of looking at the covers, it's absolutely amazing. The editor of the London, or sorry, the Illustrated Police News, um, in an interview, which has a fantastic title, title uh, The Worst Newspaper in England, an interview with the proprietor of the Police News, um, explained that illustrations were very central to their appeal. So he says, if a tragedy were to occur in London today, we would send an artist straight away to the scene. The artist, of course, always endeavors to get a view of the scene of tragedy, outrage, suicide, or accident. And we always give a picture of the house in which the inquest is held. And quite often a, a picture of the house in which the murder occurs as well. So like the star, this paper became particularly well known for its lurid coverage of the Whitechapel Ripper murders, after which its circulation peaked at around 600,000 copies per week, with a Ripper story featuring on 184 of its covers in the four years after the final murder. So I want to show you a few of the illustrations here just to give a sense of how lurid and graphic they are and also the ways in which they emphasize two things. Um, first of all, the bodies of the female victims and also the sites of the crimes. So here is Martha Tabram. Um, you'll note that the cover shows her dead body. It shows a trail of blood. And there's also sketches of George's yard, which is the scene of the murder. 
Likewise, the third victim was sketched um, after her murder and in her coffin. Uh, the nature of her injuries are shown and the location of her murder is spelled out with the panel that shows the policeman finding the body in Buck's Row. As you can see from the cover relating to the fourth victim, Annie Chapman, the police news paid special attention to the locations of the crime. So they show both the house where the victim was last seen and 29 Hanbury Street, which is the location where the murder was committed. The same is true of the covers that depict the uh, Ripper's fifth, sixth, and seventh victims. I'll just flick through these for you again. You know, the kind of the, the woman, the cutthroat, the blood, and then the picture of where the body was found or where the murder occurred. Um, this is the sixth victim, Catherine Eddowes. Um, the, the illustration of her mutilated body is particularly graphic there, uh, the most graphic one that I've found. So it seems like perhaps as, as the coverage continued, they needed to kind of up the ante with these illustrations. Um, and then this is the cover relating to the seventh victim, Mary Jane Kelly. Now, L. Perry Court Curtis, who has a fantastic book called Jack the Ripper in the London Press, which is quite old, but still really good, um, notes that when it came to bloodshed, Victorian readers seemed to relish details of what knives, axe, bullets, or other lethal weapons had done to the victims' bodies. Many of the morbid details revealed in the press would be deemed unfit to print today, even in the most Murdochian tabloids. Descriptions of bodies stabbed, shot, poisoned, and dismembered, what I call sensation horror news, composed the centerpieces of feature stories about the inquests and trials and homicide cases. Thus, a good deal of Victorian murder news qualifies as, quote, gornography, because the clinical or anatomical details published offered a fine feast for the eyes of more prurient readers. Now, while Curtis doesn't mention illustrations specifically, I would say that the illustrations provided in the coverage of the Ripper victims' murders seem to be an extreme example of this type of voyeuristic gornography that he describes. And the consumption of these visceral images seems to be a kind of vicarious dark tourism. So if you can't be there, you can experience quite viscerally what has happened to the body. Certainly the public appetite for consumption of river narratives seemed to coalesce around both bodies and places. And therefore, it seems to have encouraged a canny few people to have capitalized upon access to viewing the murder scenes and encouraging dark tourism. So on the 8th of September, the day of Annie Chapman's murder, 
the star reported the practice of paying to view the scene. It described how for several hours past, the occupants of the adjoining house have been charging an admission fee of one penny to people anxious to view the spot where the body was found. Several hundreds of people have availed themselves of this opportunity, though all that can be seen are a couple of packing cases from beneath, which is the stain of a blood track. And you'll see the accompanying illustration there helpfully labels the blood stains. Some papers use this reportage on dark tourism as an opportunity to comment on the tastes of the poor. So the East London advertiser, for instance, opined this, with all our boasted civilization and increase of educational facilities, the morbid tastes of the poor still come to the front, or we should not hear of hundreds of persons paying a penny each to view the backyard of the house in Hanbury Street, where the poor unfortunate woman Annie Chapman was hacked to pieces. The police, it is true, stopped the exhibition, but not before a considerable sum had been netted by those in charge of the house. But a week after the murder of papers, including the Times, were still reporting large crowds gathering at Hanbury Street and paying a penny to view the site of the murder. So the Penny Illustrated paper reported that, that during the whole of last Saturday and Sunday, a large crowd congregated in front of the house in Hanbury Street. And neighbours on either side did much business by making a small charge to persons who were willing to pay it to view from windows the yard in which the murder was committed. So you do wonder if this continued reporting in the press of the dark tourism was actually encouraging more people to go to the site. But a few weeks later, the East End novelist Margaret Harkness wrote that the, to the Pall Mall Gazette under her usual pseudonym, John Law, to describe a Ripper Waxwork Museum, uh, not unlike the current Ripper Museum in London, which had sprung up right on the Whitechapel Road, which is just literally beside where Mary Ann Nichols's body was found. She says, there is at present opposite the London Hospital, a ghastly display which brings the exhibitors a good living. Outside it is a picture of the unfortunate woman murdered by what slummers call that bloody demon. Inside is a cellar full of horrors. At the further end of the place, a scene of carnage, men and women murdering and being murdered. An old man exhibits these things and while he points them out to you, you will be tightly wedged in between a number of boys and girls while a smile, a smell of death rises into your nostrils and you feel as if your throat were being filled up with some poisonous fungus. So just to close then, um, Margaret Hartness went on to write a novel called In Darkest London. Um, she doesn't talk explicitly about the Ripper, but she certainly talks about um, gruesome waxworks of, of famous murderers where, uh, which are common and newspaper boys savoring in the details of gory murders. 
To finish them with Zangwill's novel and its scene of pilgrimage in Gower Street and Bow, and the, the crowds of people who are staring at the murder site, the author is clearly satirising to me this prurient practice of dark tourism, which is reported in and seemingly encouraged by papers such as The Star in the wake of the Ripper murders. It may have first seemed surprising that ripper tourism sprang up so soon after those murders, but it's less surprising, I think, when we, we think about the appetite for violent crime, which was already present in the Victorian reading public. And Zangwill's representation of dark tourism is just one of the ways in which of the press in creating and sustaining an appetite for the gory spectacle of crime. And it helps us, I think, to think about and to unpack some of the intricacies and contradictions in the relationship between crime, policing, publicity, and the press in late Victorian Britain. And that is me. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, here are some details on how you can get in touch with me and look at my book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire, for that fascinating talk. Um, I, we have some questions. Uh, I have some questions as well. Um, there's a really interesting question about, um, is there a way to promote a form of responsible dark tourism that can inform without glorifying the more graphic details? And I would add, is there a way to sort of cover these stories in a more responsible way? Um, I know that's not what the papers were going for, but but it's a, it's something that I'm. In. I think places like you know the Holocaust Museum are very much in the business of trying to um, show us these sites where atrocities happened in a responsible way. Um, I was reading some scholarship on this the other day and somebody was making the point that, you know, even having a cafe at the Holocaust Museum can feel kind of ethically rather strange. You know, you're sitting there enjoying your coffee and your sandwiches and you're at, you know, the site of the train tracks to Auschwitz. So um, I think that there are ways in which dark tourism can be done responsibly and is being done responsibly. Um, but I didn't find any examples of that in Victorian London, that's for sure. All right. Um, that's actually something to sort of go forward with as well. Um, Maggie has a question about um, the idea of whose story is it that we're going to look at. Um, how people flock to the book de depository to see where Oswald shot Kennedy. What, like, why are they going there? Is it part of a yeah. national story, or is it a, um, is it just to appreciate this dark tourist um, sort of drive we have? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think. I mean. The book depository is a great example of that and uh, as far as I know it can still be seen in its entirety is that right um whereas so. with the ripper a lot of the sites of the ripper murders what you're actually looking at now when you go on a tour is like a car park you know so like what are you actually emotionally <laughs> spiritually ethically 
educationally getting from the experience of viewing that particular site, um, I would argue nothing essentially. Um, but let me see, to go back to the, the start of the question, which was, remind me what the start of the question oh, was. Yeah, whose <laughs> who's story is it? Like whose oh, who's right, story right. are you going to yeah, interact with? You know, That's a really brilliant point. And I think it's something that true crime has actually been doing very interesting things with recently, um, particularly, you know, in, in books and in true crime documentaries with having us think about how if we're consuming true crime, uh, are we doing that for the right reasons? Are we being voyeuristic? Are we glorifying killers? Um, you know, like, and this, these kind of like a true crime conventions that you go to where people have their kind of like, you know, Ramones t-shirt, only it's got the names of serial killers on it. I mean, all of that is absolutely gross. But I think that particularly the work of um, female school scholars and historians and female documentarians, we're starting to get a turn in true crime studies towards a more victim-focused approach. So what we want to be doing in true crime is educating and letting people know about the killers. But, you know, for me, the thing about Jack the Ripper is I don't care who he was or is. It doesn't matter in the slightest. He's not interesting. But we should be thinking about the story of the women whose lives he took away rather than continuing to sort of mythologize this figure who is, you know, not interesting and essentially a murderer of women. And Holly Rubenhold is doing a wonderful job of that. I would highly recommend The Five to anybody, which is this amazing, you know, fantastic feat of research in which she gives us a, a really detailed biography of each of the five women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper and makes the claim, which you would think would not be controversial, but is that they weren't prostitutes. And she is getting a lot of hassle about that claim on a daily mm -hmm. basis from ripper enthusiasts for want of a better word who will not accept that but it does seem as if she's making a good case at least that's partially persuasive to me anyway that um the women who were killed by the ripper weren't prostitutes they were kind of you know maybe moving between the the workhouse and being um homeless but they they weren't necessarily prostitutes so i think like I'm very welcoming of this victim-focused approach. That actually ties into a question from Orla about uh, why do you think it is that the river has such a long legacy and is sort of so present in our cultural imagination? Um, there's something about unsolved murders, I guess, that are more, they have the potential for much more myth-making around them than murders which were solved. But we know from the figures of people like Ted Bundy and so on, that that can still happen even when serial murders are solved. And I think part of the attraction of Jack the Ripper is that it kind of gets caught up in a general kind of commodification of Victorian London with foggy streets and top hats and Sherlock Holmes and the idea that the Ripper might be a gentleman and maybe a member of the royal family. And all of that becomes very kind of like sex. and attractive but really is um, depressing reality of the crimes but because it's unsolved it allows people to continue to kind of pour over the details I mean nobody's ever going to solve this I think who's mm -hmm. that 
female uh, crime writer who keeps saying that she's solving it. But uh, if Ava is here, she will know. <laughs> I can't remember her name right now. But, you know, no one's going to solve it. And it doesn't matter, you know, at this point. Um, yeah. Essentially. Um, Eva is here. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if she's, she's answered the question, but she did actually ask about the, the sort of change in, in true crime narratives becoming more victim focused. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, you already answered uh, that. Um, Bernice Murphy would like to hear more about the dueling nuns. Oh, Bernice, no. <laughs> I have a suspicion that the dueling nuns were not real. Well, you never know. Yeah. There was maybe a there was maybe a grain of truth in it. But I will uh, I'll come back to you, Bernice, in, in private and, and fill you in at great length about the dueling nuns. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> uh, Orla Donnelly wants to know: Did the Thames Torso Murders of 1888 receive the same level of press scrutiny, and why are they so little known today? So, sort of tying back into our question about why Jack the Ripper so alive in our imagination. No, um, that's the thing. Like, I I don't understand um, why that's the case, but no, they didn't. So, and I think they're very little known about today. So. One of the things I think, like if we're thinking of ourselves as historians of crime and crime narratives, we have to try and think about is why certain stories stay in the public imagination and why other ones die away. But I don't actually have an answer for that in that case. Mm -hmm. But it's it's certainly true that they weren't um, as widely known about as the Ripper murders, not anything even remotely close to it. Um, I have a question from Darleth here. Charlotte Queen, um, who says, I'm a bit skeptical about the ability of a focus on the victims to generate the kind of tourism that might be economically useful to these areas. Um, I'm afraid, and I can understand why these areas might be financially anxious to keep the focus on Jack the Ripper. Um, can you comment on that a little bit? I wonder, um, I'm sort of thinking of it, Charlotte, more as the, the financial benefit from a really being something that that um, is only for a few people, is only for people that are kind of canny enough or ruthless enough um, or have proximity enough to set up these kind of dark tourism sites for people to visit. So it's a very short term kind of um, speculative way of earning money, but obviously it's not really any sort of a long term solution. But I, I guess like if you're if you're a resident in one of these areas, you may well be used to trying to make money on the hop in various sorts of ways. And this may have presented itself as um, just one option because of the circumstances. So I wouldn't want to make the case that it was seen as it was sort of economically, um, you know, kind of like helping the area out um, but it was certainly something that a few people exploited, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a few people have answered that the author is Patricia Cornwell. Patricia Cornwell, <laughs> I saw that. Yes, that's her. <laughs> yes, um, and Esther Riley has an interesting question about the connections that you know of between sensation fiction and dark tourism. Ah, that's interesting. I don't think I know of any. <laughs> Esther, would you like to say a little bit more? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can actually invite Esther to talk if she would like to. 
Hi, Claire. Can you hear me? I can. Hi, Esther. Hi. Thanks for that wonderful talk. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, different types of like murders and things that would happen in, uh, well, I'm specifically talking about Wilkie Collins and um, yeah. I don't have a specific example off the, the top of my head about, you know, sort of revisiting sites where maybe murders happened or something, but you know, as I read more and more about sensation, uh, read more and more sensation fiction, I think there might be instances where we find these, maybe it might not be dark tourism, but some type of tourism, I don't have the right word for it. Um, yeah. In, in, in there. So I, I was just wondering if there was any type of existing exploration into sensation fiction in, in tourism, dark tourism, maybe. I don't know anything. I don't think there's anything like that out there at the minute. There's obviously, um, in studies of Gothic literature, there's quite a turn at the moment towards um, studies of Gothic literature and dark tourism. But I don't know anything about it with relation to sensation fiction. I have a feeling there's not that much out there. But when you're talking, I was thinking about the road house mystery, which was yeah. the basis for the Moonstone. Yeah. And I was wondering if people went to the road house to actually look at it. But, I mean, presumably because of its location, it's not somewhere that's easily accessed. But then I also wonder about the work of sensation novelists like Collins, who are taking stories like that and kind of fictionalizing them. And does that count as a kind of vicarious dark tourism for mm -hmm. readers who would absolutely have recognized the, the newspaper story resonances with the Road Hill case, for example, when they were reading um, The Moonstone? So that, I think that could be a potentially interesting avenue of inquiry. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you for the great question. Thank you, Esther. Um, so I've just got one more question from Carly Atkinson. Do you think that considering these sites and related tourism could lead us to into thinking of spaces and places as entities with agency rather than just settings? And that, that sort of ties in interestingly, is interestingly with what you're saying about how these spaces are parking lots now, um, if you want to comment on, on that. That's a really interesting question. Uh, not something that I necessarily have a very easy answer to. Um, I think there's there's the important distinction to talk about the or to keep in mind that we mentioned earlier, which is the distinction between places that are retained uh, as the sites of murder or whatever and places that no longer exist. And, you know, how can that space kind of have agency almost um, when it really, it's been, you know, in many cases knocked down and, and paved over. So uh, with those kinds of spaces, I wonder what the purpose of the dark tourism to them is really and how the spaces can elicit any information in a way. Whereas spaces that are, have been preserved in some way, or even um, spaces like the site of the Twin Towers, for example, I think where they've obviously tried to build a very sensitive memorial and they have the tour guides who are, you know, some of the people who were bereaved um, on 9-11, then the spaces themselves do become a part of that ongoing narrative. But 
that many of the spaces of the river victims, I think, don't have the opportunity to do that anymore. Yeah, okay, that's, that's an interesting point for further discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we didn't get to all the questions, but maybe we can hand them off to Claire off, off camera. Um, I'd like to thank Claire for, Dr. Claire Clark, uh, for, for her amazing talk. Um, thank you so much. And uh, we'd also like to thank the Long Room Hub for hosting these events and for the technical support. Um, we'd like to thank the School of English at Trinity College Dublin um, and all of you for attending. Um, have a good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.